So this is the, the final segment in the series that Phil's began uh, and others been doing for the last uh, several weeks on seeking a homeland. And Phil asked me if I would uh, preach the final segment of this on a young man in the New Testament who I think uh, many of us uh, really just kind of take for granted uh, by the name of a young man by the name of Timothy. And so this morning I'm going to want to do two things. I want to uh, look at the life of Timothy and consider him, but I also want to uh, talk about the homeland that Timothy discovered, the homeland that he found. I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 11 again, uh, where all of this began. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this series of descriptions and accounts of faithful men and women of the Old Testament and many of the great things that they did. And in the midst of that list of descriptions, we have this statement in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And this is, of course, where we get the title of our series. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. People seeking a homeland. Now, we're talking about people in the Old Testament, of course, who weren't alive to see the realization of all that they had been uh, living faithfully toward. That is the coming of Jesus. And they were looking ahead to this better heavenly city. Let's think about Timothy for just a minute. Who was this young man named Timothy that we find in the New Testament, who Paul, whom Paul wrote two letters to? Let's look at his life a little bit to start with. I want to see and discuss how uh, Timothy's life is a great example. First of all, during Timothy's youth, youth, what we know from uh, Timothy is that he was um, a young man who was kind of stuck between two cultures. He was both Jew and Gentile. His mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. And so I'm sure in his household that there were times when there was some conflict. I'm sure that there were times when uh, mother and father didn't agree. And so he is in some ways a man, a young man, caught between two cultures. In, in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Because of the time in which Timothy was born, we, you know, he estimated that he was born about the year 17 AD, that he was also a young man caught between eras, between ages caught between the Jewish age and what is about to be ushered in in the Christian age. 
As a result, when Paul, uh, we see Paul coming to uh, Lystra and finding that Timothy is a uh, well-respected young man and decides that he wants to take him with him, we see that Paul has Timothy circumcised. And oftentimes people wonder, well, what, what is that? And in chapter 15, just right before this, we find that the church in Jerusalem had made some decrees, if you will, some teaching that was to be passed on to the churches that it didn't require Gentiles to be circumcised, that they didn't have to try to observe the law of Moses. There were a couple of three things that they asked them to do just uh, in order to be a good witness, but they no longer were having to follow the Mosaic law. And yet here it is that Paul asks Timothy to be circumcised. And what we need to understand is that Paul wasn't, or excuse me, Timothy wasn't circumcised as a Gentile. He was circumcised as a Jew. So his ministry later on to the Jews would not be hampered. In Acts chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy is in an interesting, unique position as a man who is both Jew and Gentile, as a man who is in between these different ages here, to be a minister for, for Paul, or with Paul. To be someone who could go to a new city, go into the Jewish synagogue, and be able to preach the gospel. To teach people based on what their understanding of the Old Testament was and leading up to discussing and talking about the life of Christ. And as a Gentile, he could also fit into the Gentile culture and, and evangelize them as well. So Paul takes him on this journey. Ministry uh, journeys, missionary trips. And Timothy becomes an amazing uh, disciple of Paul's, an amazing aid to him in his ministry. We go back again to Timothy's uh, youth. We see his relationship with his Lord and Savior from the very beginning. Began in his family. The scripture tells us that his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were Christians, probably converted during Paul's first visit to Lystra. And at that point, Timothy learns of Jesus. And by the time Paul returns on the second trip in which he recruits him, he's a well-thought-of member of that church, as it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 2. So Timothy continues on. He goes with Paul on his journeys. He becomes a great companion. He's one whom Paul counts upon to come to him and visit him while he is in prison. And it says that he thinks of him as a son in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. Timothy was 
a man who had an incredible influence on many, many churches. It's amazing when you read through the book of Acts. All the places, of course, that he visited with Paul, but then all the times in the book of Acts where uh, Paul sent him over here to this other place. Or, or he and Paul were separated, and, and Timothy was uh, in Macedonia for a time. Timothy was in Troas for a time. Timothy was um, staying here while Paul went to another place in Greece. Paul, Timothy was in Athens for a while. I mean, there's all of these different places that the book of Acts and, of course, in uh, the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches, we see Timothy showing up a number of times. Timothy was grounded in the word. He had a deep love for the church. And his ministry was uh, spread out through almost all of Asia Minor and Europe. And then finally, we see Timothy's martyrdom. Tradition tells us in the Jewish, many Jewish writings tell us about Timothy when he was uh, spending a lot of, uh, spending the last years of his life ministering to the church in Ephesus, that there were pagan celebrations going on, parades, all sorts of festivals and things celebrating these idols. And legend says that Timothy was preaching out against these pagan celebrations and it angered a group of them. They captured him and stoned him to death. So from Timothy's birth until his death, we see a man who was in the midst of this uh, turmoil, if you will, in the world, a man who was both Jew and Gentile, a man who was between ages, a man who lived during the Roman rule of this, this entire area. And Timothy discovers, in the midst of all that, from, the very, from, his, from his youth on up, discovers that his homeland, that the city in which he was to take up residence, was the church. The kingdom of God was the church. And so what I want to do here is to look at some of the things that Timothy was charged with doing. What did Timothy uh, think about the church? What was he taught and told by Paul that he needed to do within the church? And let it be an uh, inspiration to us in how we look at the church and what our role and our place in the church is. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, and if you want to go to the books of First and Second Timothy, we're going to kind of bop around here a little bit, but I, I'm going to be looking at those two letters that Paul wrote to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, it says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Paul takes Timothy, brings him along on his missionary journeys. Later on, as Timothy is uh, more specifically involved in leading a church, Paul writes to him 
to help give him some guidance about what it means to be a member of the church, a leader in the church. And so there are ten things that I want to look at this morning that I think are significant. They're all part of Paul's charge to Timothy. The first one is to always remember the grace and mercy of God in, G- in Jesus that you have received. Always remember that. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about himself here, but he's also wanting Timothy to look and understand that Paul constantly looks back at his life, constantly looks back at the fact that Jesus took him from a life of unbelief, a time in which he was a blasphemer, someone who actively fought against the church, and because of his grace and mercy, allowed Paul to participate in the great ministry of the church. And he wants Timothy to understand the same thing. Always remember the grace and mercy of Christ that brought you into the church. The second thing that is part of Timothy's charge was to be a leader in prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Timothy should be leading out in the church in prayer. And prayer for all people. It talks specifically in there a couple points about praying for leadership, praying for those who are leading our country. If the leaders of our country ever needed prayer, this is the time in which the church and each one of us as members of the church should be lifting them up. In all of my lifetime, I have a hard time remembering a period like this leading up to an election. The turmoil, the, the strife, the antagonistic attitude between parties, the, the even hatred that it seems to be back and forth between people. We need to be praying for each other and for our leaders. Another important task that was part of Paul's charge to Timothy was to establish godly leadership. In chapter 3, we see Paul's direction here and identifying elders and deacons to lead out in the church. And the significance of those men being tested, looking at leadership as an act of service, men who were able to manage their households well, men who were able to uh, have a good reputation within uh, the church and within the community. It was Timothy's job to make sure that men like that were selected out and identified as leaders in the church. We need to always be doing that. Always be identifying men 
those who can serve to uh, be the leaders in the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Two parts of this charge to Timothy. Number one, to be grounded in the word, to be a man of the word, to be constantly learning and studying the scriptures. And the second one was then to be teaching that word, to recognize that all of the church, the foundation of that is in the word of God. The next part of the charge. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. He has just given Timothy a long list of, of things that uh, he should do. He says, to, in the, starting in verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The next part of the charge, I believe, is that we need to understand that the church is made up of people. To understand that the church is made up of individuals who need grace, individuals who need mercy shown to them, individuals who need the truth spoken to them, individuals who need guidance, and at times, rebuke. And all of these things were part of what Paul is telling Timothy as his responsibility. And it's up to him to be a good example to the believers in that. Understand that each one of us is a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God. Each one of us is, as other people have said, a work in progress. That each one of us is moving towards maturity in Christ. And that we need to look at each other and to love each other. And in some cases, that means to being, being gracious and being merciful. And in some cases, the loving thing to do is to rebuke. The loving thing is to point out what the Scripture teaches so that they may learn and understand what needs to be done. Be an example. That's what Timothy is charged to do here. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, it says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. There's a whole list before this of uh, sinful actions. And he says, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the, of the faith. And in down in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. We're always called upon and charged to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's always going to be part of our faith life 
to flee those things that will drag us away from our relationship with God. And Timothy is charged here. You know, the idea, don't, be, don't get puffed up. Don't start thinking that you are uh, greater than you are. Guard your heart and mind. Understand that the devil is always there to try to uh, tear you down and fight the good fight of the faith. Going over to 2 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul tells Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Paul charges Timothy with the idea that he is going to be suffering for his faith. Being willing to suffer. And Paul is telling him from experience, having been in prison, that he is suffering for the cause of Christ. Timothy must be prepared for the same thing. And based on what we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, we know that Timothy was and had suffered. He apparently was imprisoned for some time because of his faith. Because in that verse it says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Timothy knew what it was like to suffer. He was charged with being willing to suffer for the church. And we as individuals realize that there's going to be times when we are going to suffer for our faith. We must embrace it. Be glad that we can do that. Paul charges Timothy with defending the church, standing up for the church, recognizing that the church is the bride of Christ and that she needs defending. Defending against division, defending against foolish controversies that cause that kind of division. Listen to these expressions that Paul uses in the course of his letters to Timothy to describe this. He calls it irreverent, silly myths. Quarrel about words. Avoid irreverent babble. There's an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And he also says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Timothy was up against it in his church. And Paul knew that and understood that, not just in the church in Ephesus where, where Timothy served, but in other churches as well, that there were those who were always constantly trying to uh, find fault, to... Uh, to pick at this, to come up with this little controversy, or to uh, raise silly, foolish questions and uh, try to get people to argue and fight about it. And Paul knew that Timothy was going to have to defend the church against that kind of divisiveness. And that's part of his charge as well. Another thing was that they were to understand, and Paul, Timothy was to understand that there are going to be those who love themselves and oppose the truth. 
who love themselves and oppose the truth. That's the expression that he uses there in, in 2 Timothy. And Paul uses the example of Janus and Jambres. I think that's how you pronounce it. Janus and Jambres. Interesting uh, interjection here into the, into the letter. Paul uses this uh, account because we don't see these names anywhere else in the Bible. But we do learn from Jewish tradition, from other Jewish writings, and others even outside of the church, that Janus and Jambres were names that were attributed to the significant magicians who were able to mimic the first three miracles, if you will, that Moses performs in front of Pharaoh. When Moses is in, uh, has gone to Pharaoh trying to get his people freed from slavery within Egypt, God tells him that he is to take his staff and throw it on the ground and that it will turn into a serpent. And we read in Exodus chapter 8 that the magicians of Pharaoh, the magicians of Egypt were able to throw staffs down as well and because of their dark arts and in some way or another they were able to create serpents as well. The serpent that Moses uh, created throw, throwing down his staff ended up eating their serpents but still, they were able to, to mimic this. Moses comes back, later, comes back later. The very first plague upon Egypt, plague of blood. The Nile and all the water in Egypt was turned to blood. And you can imagine all of the consequences as a result of that. You know, I mean, sometimes we just think, oh, it turned everything, everything liquid to blood. You know, or the, the stench, the death, the uh, other things that would be associated with that. But these magicians were able to recreate that uh, miracle as well, that plague. Then Moses, because Pharaoh's heart is hardened again, is called upon to bring out the next miracle, which is the miracle of, of frogs, a plague of frogs, the frogs coming up from everywhere. Ian was talking about my dad, and I always remember my one of my dad's favorite sermons was, One More Night with the Frogs. And he would preach about, you know, Pharaoh, how Pharaoh is, was so resistant to letting God's people go that he was willing to spend one more night because, you know, Moses said, I can get rid of these anytime you want. And he says, well, just wait until tomorrow. It's like, let's get rid of them right now. But they were able to recreate that plague and bring frogs out that just scattered and went into everything. The Bible talks about they were in the water pots, they were in the cupboard, they were in the beds, they were everywhere, these frogs. And then finally, when we get to the, the plague of gnats, Moses takes his staff and strikes the dust of the ground and the dust turns into gnats that torment and torture the people. If you've ever had a lot of gnats that you had to deal with, you know what that's like. And at that point, these magicians were not able to recreate that or mimic that plague. And it says in the Bible that they were forced to tell Pharaoh 
that this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh is finally starting to get the, get the idea, finally starting to get the point that this was the finger of God. And in the same way, these men in, in Timothy's church, the same way that they were deceiving men and women, trying to keep them enslaved in their own passions and in their own uh, sin, just in the same way that Janus and Jamres were trying to deceive and to keep the Israelites enslaved as well. But ultimately, they were forced to say that this is the finger of God. And so when we see people coming into the church, anybody who is trying to prey on those who are weak, trying to prey on those who uh, have of struggles, to keep them in those struggles, to keep them down, and we see God working amazing things in the church, and we see God doing uh, awesome things in the lives of his people, that ultimately those people have to recognize that you know, that is the finger of God at work in his church. And last of all, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul's charge to Timothy includes this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And Paul's charge to Timothy was to preach. And that's what the church is about. The church is about preaching the word. And everything that we can do in connection with that, everything that we can do related to making sure that God's word is preached is an important thing to do. If it means that we create an FM, a little tiny FM station, so that we can broadcast the word to the people in the parking lot and to others in the surrounding area, if it means we have to put services online, if it means that we have to uh, rearrange our seating, if it means we have to do all those kinds of things, if that allows us to preach the word, then those are significant and important things to do. Anything that we can do that will bring someone into the church so that they can hear God's word being preached. So when we, we have things like Thursday night pursuits, celebrate recovery, things that will bring those to, to the church to hear God's word, those are important things. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. So as we wrap up here this morning, what are some things then that we can take from the life of Timothy and Paul's charge to Timothy for our own lives and for our own relationship with God. Remembering that Timothy was this young man caught between two worlds that in his search for his homeland, he finds that his homeland is within the church. That better country, the kingdom of God. And just like Timothy, we need to remember that each one of us has something important to contribute to the kingdom of God. Timothy, because of his unique position as a Jew and a Gentile, he had a particular role to play. 
and he was able to be used by Paul within his missionary journeys. But each one of us has something similar that we can bring to the church, something that we can contribute that can contribute to the ministry of the kingdom. We need to be searching for that, looking for that, trying to find a place where we can involve ourselves in that way. Each of us must be in prayer. We've talked about that already. Each praying for each one of us. Praying for our country, praying for our church, praying for our community. We need to be a people of prayer because the church is a place of prayer. We always need to keep in mind that we must guard our own hearts and minds in Christ as we deal with others and their needs. When we get to a point where we are uh, thinking that we are special, that we are above somebody else, that we're in a place where I no, I no longer have to, to worry about my relationship with Christ, then we're in, in a sad place. When we deal with others, and we deal with the needs of people within our community and our church, we need to be careful about how we see ourselves. Each of us needs to be involved in the ministry of the Word. Reading the Word every day, taking advantage of Bible study opportunities, being in, uh, in Sunday school, listening to radio programs that, that teach the Word. There are all sorts of different ways to immerse yourself in the Word every day. And it's important that we do that. That's part of what Paul's charge to Timothy was as well. And each of us must recognize that there are going to be threats against the church. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be suffering associated with being called one of God's elect, being called one of God's children in his church. And we need to be willing and able to deal with that. I'm so very thankful and grateful that I have found my homeland. That the place, the city where I dwell is not Libby, Montana. It's not um, Lincoln County. It's not the place where I was born, places where I spent time in my youth. It's not this country. It's not this, this planet. That is not my homeland. My homeland is the church. My homeland is the family of, of God, which includes all of you, all those that may be out in the parking lot, all those that are listening um, in other places, all those that are worshiping in Calspell and Troy and all around the world. That is my homeland. And I don't know if you have that same kind of sense or feeling that the church is your dwelling, the church is your heavenly city. We ultimately are going to transition from the church into God's kingdom. But it is right here and right now that we find our homeland together.